Good evening, and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. In recent years, many of you have heard the terms undocumented immigrants, DACA, DREAMers, and other more profane and racist terms for individuals who have immigrated into the United States. During an earlier discussion on this uh, program, we talked about issues, problems, concerns, and the legal rights surrounding documented dreamers, or the more than 330,000 individuals from other countries who hold H-1B work or student visas, which are reserved for higher skilled workers and allow them to work and or stay in this country for a specific period of time. We did not discuss the more than 430,000 undocumented students who are attending post-secondary institutions of which approximately 13% identify as black and are less likely to be eligible for DREAMer or DACA status. Of those individuals who do obtain DACA status, less than 1% identify as Black, 2% uh, identify as being from the Caribbean, and approximately 3% identify as being from Africa. Yet Black undocumented students are twice as likely to be deported as others who exhaust their visa privileges to remain in the United States. Tonight, we are going to discuss our the immigration issues and the immigration process and how a segment of Blacks in higher education are impacted by this status. It is an honor to welcome to our Zoom studio, Dr. Kayon Hall, an assistant professor of higher education administration at Kent State University. Dr. Hall has researched these issues, written about them, and educated the college and university communities about these invisible populations within our midst. Dr. Hall, welcome to the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be in community with you all today. Well, we appreciate your uh, joining us uh, this uh, this evening. So, out of the gate, uh, you know, we, we want our audience to know who you are. So, can you kind of give us? some uh, background information about yourself and how you came to focus on a study of issues which affects uh, an invisible population of students in our country today. Sure. So, you know, as you noted earlier, I'm an assistant professor of higher education at Kent State University. But I think more importantly, I think this really points to my um, connection and involvement in this work is I'm a Black immigrant woman. I'm a Black transnational woman. I was born in Jamaica. I have immigrant parents and I was brought to the U.S. by my family. And so 
the the idea of undocumentedness or immigrant identities are things that are very close to me and close to my family because as an immigrant you know people who sit across the various immigration statuses and so growing up in brooklyn new york also i'm situated within these ethnic enclaves and so i'm able to understand and see the plight of folks who are documented and who are undocumented alike well, for, for, our, for our audience, uh, can you just describe what constitutes a documented immigrant as opposed to an undocumented uh, immigrant and what are, the, uh, what are the implications of being one or the other? Yeah, so, you know, if you're, if you're moving to, the, to any country, and we're going to use the U.S., for example, today, um, there are different ways that you can you can move or you can migrate. And so um, visa statuses is one of the ways that people move. And so you mentioned earlier, H-1B is a work visa. That's one way to move to the United States. You have a B-1 visa, which is a visitor visa. You have an F-1, which is a student visa. So there are various categories that allow people to move across these different nation states and different nation borders. Um, however, for folks who do not have access to these visas, right, or are not filed for, are sponsored by their families, if they enter the United States without those documentation, they are considered undocumented. So an undocumented person is an individual who enters the United States without documentation that they have the, the opportunity to be here in the United States. And so we look at those who have visa statuses and so it, it depends right because different visa categories give you different access to things right so for example an f1 visa person cannot work outside of the campus but an h1b individual can work because they're sponsored by an organization or an institution for someone who's undocumented and specifically undocumented without daca right, that person cannot work at all, right? So they are not able to access driver's license. They are not access to um, get a social security card. They are susceptible to being deported because they're not supposed to be in this country. Um, DACA stands for Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, and that is granted to folks who are brought here before 2007, um, under the age of 16, who have graduated high school, who do not have any um, criminal activities, felonies, or misdemeanors, who were able to access DACA. And DACA gives them a temporary uh, reprieve, right? So you have a two-year status, um, you get a, a social security card, you are not deported. Um, DACA allows you to access things such as um, in-state tuition, for example, uh, a driver's license, for example. And so there are clear uh, differences between those who are undocumented and documented and those who have DACA and those who do not have DACA. So there are clear lines between those two categories. So as, as I understand it, as, as an undocumented uh, person, you have to constantly be looking over your shoulders. Constantly. It's, it's, it's stressful, right? Because also not only are you thinking about yourself, you're thinking about your family, right? Um, and we're in a very like hostile socio-political climate considering um, as it pertains to immigrants and undocumented people specifically. So you're not, you never feel safe. You're always in the shadows, right? You're always wondering, am I going to get stopped? 
if I get pulled over by the cops, what's going to happen to me? Um, you know, I've had conversations with folks who are undocumented and they really talk about leaving home and worrying about never returning or parents leaving home and never returning. And so it happens quite often in, in undocumented communities. Yeah. You know, a, a, a lot of people <clears throat> don't understand that as it relates to young people, many of them are, are brought into the country by their parents who are undocumented at mm -hmm. an early age. Yeah. And uh, they grow up not knowing, one, that they are undocumented, but then two, the impact and the dangers of being undocumented uh, in, this, uh, in this country. Can you kind of you know, kind of talk about that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. That happens quite often, you know, and, you know, parents, uh, they, they make the best decision that they can for you, right? They try their best to make the best decisions. And so, you know, letting your child know that they're undocumented, you know, people have different approaches to that. It might be, I want to protect you. You don't have to worry about this thing, right? I just want you to be here, do well in school and focus on certain things. And others are more vocal about it and share it with their with their children. I'll give you an example. In my, in my recent study, one of my studies I conducted, I met with a couple of undocumented folks um, who had DACA. And one of my uh, one of the students I met with, he did not find out that he had DACA, that he was undocumented, I'm sorry, until he was applying to go to college, which is oftentimes is the case, right? You, you get to high school you realize that you're needing all these different things to complete your FAFSA or you're wanting to obtain a driver's license and you do not have any of this documentation. And so he really talked to me about how that made him feel, sitting in the classroom and finding out that he could not attend because he didn't have the financial means to go to college. Um, but on, you know, conversely, I had another student who knew all along that he was undocumented and his his mom told him you are not undocumented until you're 18. So she had a really interesting way of also protecting him by saying that you are undocumented be alert of these challenges and implications of not being documented but I don't want you to worry about that just quite yet because the real implications come when you're 18 years old and so that's how she kind of helped him deal with that as he navigated post-secondary um, and secondary institutions. One of the things that Irv mentioned in his intro is that those that identify as Black are less likely to be eligible for DREAMA um, or DACA status or recognition. Can you talk about why that is and what's being done to help address that, if anything? Yeah, so you find that, um, so there are far less, num the, the, the number of Black undocumented folks are far less in comparison to folks from other countries, um, like for Mexico, South America, um, or folks who identify as Latinx, right? They're just far less numbers. And so you find that sometimes um, those students are not, they don't fall within the DACA category, right? They're outside of the, the, the 2007 timeline, right? Or they're, they're, they're unafraid. They're unafraid to come forward and apply for DACA. And so, you know, it really impacts the Black community significantly, right? So you find a lot of students who are Black who don't have DACA um, in comparison to their peers. And so I, I don't know if there are things that are being done to rectify that. I think that um, at this point in time now, we can't fix that because we're now entering into a post-DACA generation. And so about 100,000 um, this cohort of folks who are graduating high school, about 100,000 per year, 
are not going to be eligible for DACA because they've come after, right? And so DACA was not meant to be a panacea for success, right? It was a temporary stopgap and hopeful, uh, hopefully opened up the doors for a pathway for citizenship, but we haven't seen that happen just quite yet. And so as we move forward and as educators, we have to really think about how are we gonna support students because DACA is not gonna be a thing anymore because they've, mm -hmm. they've all aged out. And so what do we do? And so, um, you know, I think that there are a lot of things that we have to think about, like how do we decouple DACA and work? You know, oftentimes we see that um, you want to work on campus, you, you have to have DACA or to access certain scholarships, you should have DACA. And so how can institutions be more intentional about decoupling DACA and resources so that undocumented students can actually access these things? Because going forward, DACA will be a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. Now, your study uh, kind of focused on uh, uh, undocumented students at the uh, uh, college and university uh, levels. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that to, to some extent, uh, undocumented students are able to navigate typically through uh, high school and uh, elementary school, probably without a lot of uh, exposure. Mm -hmm. Uh, because the way that the school system is set up, but then the trouble start uh, when you're trying to get into uh, colleges and, and universities. So can you kind of explain yeah. uh, how that how that emerged? So, you know, um, the Playa versus the Act of 1965 you know, allowed any person, regardless of immigration status, to access K-12 education. So it was deemed unconstitutional, unlawful to prevent a child from being able to access education because of their legal status. And so that provided significant protections in terms of access to, to education for um, undocumented um, youth. But the problem started when they're now accessing higher education, like that law does not extend to higher education. You know, institutions vary. Um, you have private institutions, for example, that <laughs> govern themselves. Um, public schools that are governed by state policies. And so there are policies that ban them from accessing higher education. States like Georgia, for example, does not allow undocumented students to access public institutions. Um, and so it's hard for students. So their, their experiences in, in terms of accessing higher education varies greatly because the political landscape, the policy landscape is, is varied based on states. And so it's really hard for undocumented students um, to access higher education. And they also come, come across also educators and institutional leaders who are unaware of how to ac actually support them in their college choice process. This is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we are talking with uh, Dr. Kayon Hall, who is a uh, assistant professor in uh, Kent State uh, University. And we're talking about uh, the uh, distinctions between uh, undocumented and documented uh, black students in uh, our colleges and uh, universities, particularly those who have not obtained uh, DACA uh, status. And we're looking at issues, problems, and concerns, and, and their legal problems. Uh, as we continue this discussion. We want you to uh, stay with us and we're going to take a break right now. And we will...
Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I am a current third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. Immigration law has been a hot-button political issue for the past 20 years. The Development, Relief, and Education for Alien Minors Act, or the DREAM Act for short, is federal legislation that has been proposed to Congress on various occasions. It would give undocumented immigrants a gateway to legally remain in the United States if they came to the country when they were young. Eligible immigrants may apply for conditional residency, leading to permanent residency, based upon their age at the time of entry into the United States. This bill directs the Department of Homeland Security, or DHS, to cancel removal and grant lawful permanent resident status on a conditional basis to an alien who is inadmissible or deportable or is in temporary protected status who, one, has been continuously physically present in the United States for four years preceding the bill's enactment, two, was younger than 18 years of age on the initial date of U.S. entry, three, is not inadmissible on various grounds such as those related to crime or security, and four, has fulfilled specified educational requirements. Despite the many failed attempts to pass the DREAM Act, the state of California has already passed their version of the DREAM Act. While California is typically among the leaders of change, the federal government usually moves slower. Only time will tell if and when the DREAM Act will be passed federally. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Legal Eagle Review Spotlight. North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to, one, facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and two, increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this evening as we uh, continue our conversation with uh, Dr. Hall uh, about uh, documented and undocumented uh, Black students uh, in our colleges and universities and some of the issues, problems, and concerns that they encounter uh, as they are undocumented. Let me kind of reference the study that you were engaged in uh, dealing with uh, this topic. Over what period of time? Uh, did you uh, conduct 
this uh, this study, and then what? How many students are implicated in uh, the uh, concerns that we that that we're discussing here this evening? Yeah, so I conducted this study over the course of a year, and so I did a narrative inquiry study. So that methodological approach lends itself for more intimate conversations with a fewer number of students. So I spoke with four Black undocumented students um, to really glean their experiences in higher education. And so I want to note that, you know, when you're undocumented, you're taking a huge risk by disclosing your status. And so thinking about a population who is already not considered as undocumented or not seen or positioned as undocumented can be quite challenging really accessing that community as well. Um, and so, um, you know, speaking with them, you know, I learned a lot about their experiences. You know, a lot of conversations were brought forth, particularly around race and how they're racialized as Black individuals, but then also how they're not seen as undocumented within their institutions and how challenging it was for them. And they felt othered in many ways as Black undocumented students. So um, so you had an opportunity to really spend some time with the four students who were interviewed. I, I assume, and, and I'd like to get your thoughts on this, that the experiences will be different. Um, of course, there'll be some similarities, but also some differences depending on where the students are from. So they could be from different countries in Africa or from the Caribbean. Can you talk about how um, the, the experiences may differ or were similar depending on where they were from. Sure. So um, I think of uh, one person in particular who is from a country in Africa. And, you know, he talked a lot about his social positioning as a tall Black man and how he entered space and how um, he was racialized based on his height, based on his race. Um, and so we talked a lot about being on campus and, 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 and going to different departments and asking questions about, are there resources for me? I'm undocumented. And folks are saying, but didn't you graduate high school? So they were so confused that he had a U.S. diploma for high school, but was not able to access financial aid. Um, you know, another student of mine, his experience is a little different. Um, he actually received a scholarship. And so his experience was a little seamless, right? In terms of navigating higher education, in terms of accessing resources because he had a, he had a scholarship. But his challenges really came to focus when he met with his counselor and really expressing his depression and anxiety around being undocumented, worrying about what's next constantly and was told that it's just circumstantial. You just need to get a job, you know? And so we see these things vary across, right? There's similarities in terms of, yes, you're racialized, you're not seen as undocumented, but you still have the worry of fear of disclosure, deportation, and you're coming across these different institutional leaders and a counselor who's supposed to be positioned to help you understand your experience, but they don't know what to do with you. And so it was hard to hear them talk about that. You know, I had another student who, it was really interesting. She really brought, brought to focus the, the intra-group dynamics, right? So she talked about being Black, as racialized as Black, 
but her friend who was uh, a light-skinned white passing uh, like undocumented person and how their experiences were different. And so she oftentimes called attention to that to her friend and her friend would not understand it. And so we see these things that are happening constantly as well. So the issues that we have about race, right, they're still happening, you know, in addition to or in conversation with immigration as well. And so it can really be complex and complicated for, for these students. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, April raised a question um, earlier about um, you know, these experiences uh, as being uh, un un undocumented. And you label this as the uh, an invisible uh, population. Uh, but isn't a lot of the invisibility uh, addressed or caused by they're not wanting to disclose the fact that they are undocumented. And you have to be pretty brave, you know, to disclose that you are undocumented, particularly in a public university where um, a person, uh, uh, the counselor or the professor might be obligated to report mm -hmm. the uh, that person's presence as an undocumented uh, student. Yeah, so some of the visibility does um, come from the fear of disclosure of status, right, and be, and being deported, and so that's that's a reality of it. But I think that a lot of the invisibility is also coming from how you know we think about big D discourse and how conversations around movements or policies are being framed in the larger social discourse. And so when you think of a person who's undocumented, you do not think of someone who's Black because, it, because Black people have not been positioned in political conversations or discourse as being undocumented. It's only folks from particular parts of the world. And so we've, we've almost pulled our understanding and our framing and our imaging of who is undocumented based on those things. Now, a person who's Black and undocumented, again, fewer numbers. And so by virtue of being a smaller population, they're not as visible as other students. But my issue is, right, as an educator is that, you know, as, as higher education, as institutions who serve different groups of students, we know for sure that folks can be Black and undocumented, can be Asian and undocumented, right? Can be Latinx or Hispanic and undocumented. And so it is our responsibility to be intentional about making sure that we're informing our institutional policies that are more inclusive, our practice, our curriculum, um, and how we provide support for students so that we're not rendering other groups of students silent because we're only uh, framing the undocumented conversation in a very specific way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and as, as you were talking, it, it really kind of underscored the point you were making about the intra-group dynamics. So we know being Black in the United States has with it a lot of mm -hmm. um, trauma and baggage wow. and, and people see your uh, race and your gender first before they, you know, hear you speak. And even in right. hearing you speak may not realize that you are, that someone is undocumented. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the issues I can imagine as you've, you know, talked about are varied when it comes to the black undocumented and then additional issues based on maybe where the individual is from. Mm -hmm. So your research, what has the reception been? Like, are you finding that these educational institutions, um, uh, higher educational institutions are receptive and are making progress towards better supporting these students? 
Yeah, I think that I think that it's it's been received very well. You know, I think that it's it's it has almost been like a wow. I didn't really think about that. You know, I think that we we do equity, we do social justice work. You know, and I always say that even in doing that work, we have to ask ourselves who are we leaving within the margins, like. We have to constantly ask ourselves those kinds of questions because we could be doing that, right? Um, and so again, it, it frames our understanding. And so we don't think outside, we don't look outside of these little boxes. And so I feel like people have been really receptive and really said, I appreciated you troubling our understanding of you know, undocumented students or the undocumented uh, conversation. So I'm excited about that. And I'm excited that you know, going forward that I will continue to get support um, and folks will shift how they provide support. I think about undocumented resource centers, you know, when I look across different institutions, you look at their websites, for example, you know, you have to ask yourself, like, am I seeing myself, if I'm a person who is Black and undocumented, can I see myself in these images? You know, do I see myself in these institutional artifacts? And if I don't see myself in these things, like, what, what are you telling me, right? Because the absence of also has meaning. And so those have real implications for how I think about my sense of belonging on college campuses and, or universities' commitment, exposed commitment to support for me as a Black undocumented person, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that I hope, my hope is that my work continues to um, really open up our understanding about undocumented folks and really inform how we uh, shape and create institutional policies and practices to support all students who are undocumented, including Black students. Are, are there advocacy organizations that's, uh, that's out there that can uh, specific, specifically focus on this uh, uh, set of the population, both outside of the university setting and inside of the uh, university setting? Yeah, there are, there are a lot of um, Black immigrant rights groups that are really advocating for just immigration policies for um, Black immigrants, undocumented folks. I think of the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, for example, you have Dream USA, you have the African Alliance, for example, are just a few um, organizations that really advocate for Black folks. Um, And I think that, you know, as universities, we have to also work in, in, you know, in conversation with them, in tandem with them, so that they can help us um, better shape um, policies and practices. So one of the things that you've mentioned is that there are, you know, that um, there are rights, constitutional and other rights that allow undocumented children to be able to access K through 12 education. Not so when you're talking about higher ed and you mentioned that Georgia doesn't allow um, for with their private institutions, at least for undocumented to undocumented individuals to be able to access um, their institutions. Can, can you talk about why it's important that um, even if you have someone who is undocumented, that there is support and access to higher education? I think oftentimes people will say, well, you know, which I think the kind of the political Um, situation in Georgia, which is, well, they're undocumented, they shouldn't have access to our public institutions anyway. And that seems very short-sighted to me in terms of the health of our country and being able to support those who are interested in continuing on with their education. Can you talk about why this is such an important topic um, as we're talking about access to higher education, even for those who may be undocumented? Yeah, I mean, 
when you have these exclusionary policies and practices, right, you are explicitly stating um, whose knowledge is valuable and who can produce knowledge, right? And I think that is really important to understand that regardless of a person's immigration status, they are able, they're knowledge producers and we should be welcoming them and we should be open to understanding, you know, their experiences, you know, and informing how we think about the world, right? You know, we think about diversity, equity, inclusion, right? It's these kinds of experiences that shape our understanding about the issues of different groups of people, right? And so if we're cutting them out of the conversation or saying that you don't belong, right? You're communicating something very specific. And so, Students from different backgrounds, from different um, cultural backgrounds, you know, have different lived experiences, different lived realities, whether that's gender, racial, socioeconomic backgrounds, they shape our understanding and how we should show up as educators. And it's important for us to have a class, to have a group, to have a community of scholars who have various backgrounds, because it's important for our, for our learning as individuals. Well, with respect to the uh, higher education uh, community that, uh, that, that we're in, um, what do you advise to administration as to reaching out to this population and then once reaching out to them, what is it that they can provide uh, to these students to help uh, address the trauma or anxiety uh, that uh, that they are experiencing. Yeah, you know, you know. Again, um, understanding that undocumented folks um, are not going to always disclose their status, right? There are huge risks and implications of doing so. Um, I think that universities should um, be more proactive in making it very clear that they support them. So, having clear policies on the websites making it very clear that you support undocumented students, outlining uh, institutional aid and support that are available for students, having a go-to person that a person can contact if they have questions. I think about when you're sending out these, um, these view books, right? You're mailing out view books to different uh, individuals for prospective uh, admissions, right? Have a section that's dedicated towards, you know, a dedicated for undocumented folks. So you're doing two things. You're communicating your support um, for undocumented students to undocumented students, and you're also showing other folks who are not undocumented that, listen, we are a community that believes in inclusive learning and supporting students across race, gender, immigration status, socioeconomic background. So you're communicating something. And I personally believe that those things are self-selecting, right? If you don't want to be a part of it, then you don't come to this institution. But I think that if that's what you believe, then stand on it, you know, and, and be upfront about it going forward. In terms of how institutions can support students, you know, I think that they should, they can reimagine a lot of things, right? They may be restrictive state policies, but what about institutional support? Can you provide scholarships for undocumented students? You know, can you provide institutional aid to help them have um, less tuition or no tuition, right? Do you, does your campus have an undocumented resource center, for example, that helps with, with them holistically support? How can you facilitate joy? Um, I think those are some of the kinds of ways that they can support them. Um, you know, I think, for example, like say, for example, New York City, you know, where it's very urban, you're taking a train, can your office provide free metro cards 
for folks to come to campus daily. You know, it's, it's a little things that you can do that you can reimagine support. It doesn't always have to be monetary, but there are other ways that you can support undocumented folks as well. And now the students that you interviewed for your study, um, did they have any specific examples of how they were supported or suggestions that uh, other things that you haven't already touched upon like how was interviewing them how did that kind of inform your um suggestions to institutions of higher learning sure so you know a lot of them talked about really bumping up against educational leaders who had no idea how to work with them you know, or um, experience, you know, one, one, one student in particular talked about being in a classroom and his professor said, why are you so, why are you all so gloom and doom? You know, like, does the election really affect you? This was during the Trump era. Does the election really affect you? And he said, he said, I sat and I was like, yeah, this affects me. Like it really impacts my life. So, you know, understanding those things that you're working with different groups of students that are sitting before you, how can you be inclusive and, I mean, but that professor was just on a whole other timeline, but <laughs> not getting into it. But, you know, so, you know, so educational leaders, you know, I think they talked a lot about not having scholarships that are specifically geared towards Black students. They would have liked to see more of those kinds of scholarships. Um, and then also having more institutional aid in terms of, you know, decreasing student tuition, for example, um, and, and other kinds of like support. So. For example, I, I talked earlier about the, the counselor who was not, um, was very insensitive to the students. So he, he really wondered, is this across the entire school system? You know, so he talked about really making sure that your counselors, your mental health counselors are really aware of the challenges and the plight of undocumented folks and that they're better positioned to help and support them. Because undocumented folks, you know, like, you know, as Irvin talked about earlier, you're constantly looking behind your back. And even if you have DACA, you're constantly, every two years, it's a, it's a new challenge. You're wondering, am I gonna get renewed? Where am I gonna get the money from to do this this year if I'm not working? Or even if I am working, I may not be working enough money. And it's a, it's a back and forth, it's exhausting, it's, it's traumatizing, you know, like you, get, you can get numb, right? And so um, we have to keep these things in mind as we work with these students. All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we have with us here in our Zoom studio, Dr. Kayon Hall. She is an assistant professor of higher education at Kent State University, and she does research focusing on the undocumented, particularly Black individuals. We have been talking this hour about these um, invisible, undocumented individuals who a lot of folks don't know about. And so I know I'm learning a lot. We hope you all are as well. We hope you stay with us. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Caitlin Chesney, and I'm a current third-year law student at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight event. Please join Spectacular Magazine in celebrating North Carolina's largest Black History Month celebration. The 20th annual North Carolina MLK Black History Month Parade is February 4, 2003, 
at 12 noon, located on Fayetteville Street in Durham, North Carolina. The parade brings the community free entertainment in the form of marching bands, step, dance, or drill teams, cars, mascots, cartoon characters, and more. The MLK slash Black History Month Parade provides fun for the entire family for the entire day. You can find more information and register for the parade at spectacularmag.com forward slash events forward slash parade forward slash. Again, my name is Caitlin Chesney, and this is your Community Spotlight event. And we're back. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host, Irving Joyner and I, have been talking this hour with Dr. Kayon Hall. She is an assistant professor of higher education at Kent State University. And Dr. Hall, you, um, I wanna go back to something that you touched upon um, earlier this hour when you were saying that there are um, some undocumented uh, young adults, so those that may have finished high school, that are learning for the first time that they are undocumented. Um, so for those who are learning it for the first time, they're having to, one, deal with the emotions of, of being um, finding out that they weren't getting all the information right from their family beforehand, and also dealing with this new reality that they have some real serious limitations that could impact their continued um, living, continuing to live in the United States uh, may affect their livelihood and, and certainly based on your research can affect their ability to gain higher education. Can you talk a little bit more about the dynamics of um, what happens when you have, you know, an undocumented individual who is finding out for the first time after graduating from high school or about that time that they are in fact undocumented and it's going to have some serious implications on, on how they navigate in this country? Sure. So, um, you know, I've seen, uh, you know, one of my, you know, the students I worked with, you know, talked a lot about the relationship with his, with his father, right? And it shaped, um, it shaped his experience a lot significantly because he was just finding out. So there was a, a sense of betrayal that came with that, like finding out in that way, sitting in the classroom, recognizing that you're cut off the list because you haven't paid because, well, you don't have FAFSA, right? Um, and so there's a sense of betrayal that came with that, an anger that came with that um, because he felt like he was kept in the dark for so long. And so it shaped how he thought about his life going forward. Like he asked himself, well, what am I supposed to do now? I, I thought that I was gonna, my life was gonna be this way. I was gonna do these kinds of jobs. And now I have to rethink that a lot. I mean, fortunately now he has DACA, but you know, you don't think about those things in the moment, right? And you don't know about your options and the resources that are there in that moment. All you see is the fact that this was held for me. I just found out my life is gonna, it's completely changed right now. What do I do? Well, you know, Following up on that, uh, throughout this uh, growing up process, the uh, parents are aware that they are undocumented. Mm -hmm. What is it that the uh, parents could do or should have done during those formative years uh, to uh, 
I guess, get the, uh, the, the child out of this danger zone by seeking uh, documentation that would allow mm -hmm. them uh, to uh, stay. So isn't some of this responsibility placed on, on the parents and their short-sightedness uh, in not seeking to legalize the uh, entry of the uh, child uh, into uh, into this country. Yeah, so this, you know, this really kind of goes back to how um, the U.S. immigration system is set up and designed, right? It's a very arduous process, um, you know, first. Um, and second, there's just only a very specific way that a person can move to the U.S. And so if a person moves to the U.S. Um, and is undocumented, it's it's only it's, it's almost impossible sometimes to get your child um, to have like to become to change your documented status because there's no way to do that right because mm. as a child your parents would sponsor you right because they have a green card or a U.S. citizenship and they would sponsor you and that would give you access right so you have unlimited visa quotas for children under the age of 21 right but if your parents are undocumented then there's no way that they can help you. Mm -hmm. Right. And so they would have to be documented to help you. Um, and, and so it's, it's hard. It's, it's really mm -hmm. hard. You know, so when you when you make the decision to to leave your home um, and then bring your child or your children with you to a new country, like you're coming fully well, understanding that I'm in for a life of hardship. And, and I don't think that anyone would willingly choose to leave home to go in a situation that is unknown and a life that is full of, you know, pain or trauma or challenges, right? It's, it's a reason why folks leave, mm -hmm. right? People leave for various reasons. Um, people leave to the U.S. because of how the U.S. is positioned as a nation state, as a, state, a nation state of resources and a land of opportunity. We oftentimes hear about the American dream, right? Like people, we get these messages all across the world. And people want to access these things. And so they come here in hopes that their life will be better. And so I might not be documented, but hopefully my kid can go to school and, and, and be educated in a U.S. system. Um, they can speak a certain way. They can move a certain way that gives them social capital, right? And hopes that they are able to access jobs that they can have financial capital, right? And that will be good for a family. And so those are some of the things that I'm, you know, are going through the minds of folks, you know, you know, as someone who's not a parent and as someone who is not um, in the position of being undocumented and having an undocumented child, I, I shudder to, to, to provide advice to how, you know, parents should, you know, orient their children in these ways. Mm. You know, I think that it really comes down to the individual. You have to do what you think is best for your children. You know your child, your child is different and no one knows your child better than you. And so you know what your, your child can handle and cannot handle. So I'll just say that, you know, I think that parents make a decision that they think is best for their children. Um, and we just hope that, you know, as we continue along these conversations around documentedness, that we really, that Congress really works on creating pathways to citizenship for all the students and all the children and folks who are undocumented. Yeah. And because of your research, I, I have to imagine that, uh, you know, young people, young adults who are finding themselves um, 
either becoming aware that they're undocumented or maybe even knowing before, but now being 18 and having to navigate the system a little bit differently, um, may have reached out to you for, for advice on what to do at, at that point. So I, I appreciate your um, comments about, um, you know, not giving advice to, to parents, not having been in that situation and, and really understanding how challenging it is. Uh, but at some point for these young adults who do hit 18 and do want to um, be gainfully employed, get higher education, um, what advice have you been able to impart or would you be able to impart today? Sure, you know, I, I would say that, you know, make sure that you find an individual who is supporting you, who can support you, you know, be intentional about um, connecting with immigrant rights organizations, um, getting involved, learning your rights, being able to identify schools that have um, support and resources for undocumented students, highlighting and knowing what states have um, certain kinds of policies, you know, restrictive policies or policies that are more liberal. We see that the West schools in California, for example, have more liberal policies, right? And so you may not, you know, you may not, you may be living in a state that has very restrictive policies. You know, how do you, if you can move, and that's probably not an option because you don't have the financial means to do so, right? So I think identifying someone that can help you navigate the process. Um, sometimes, you know, um, folks, they get close to folks, you know, like individuals at K through 12, and they may disclose their status. Um, but I think that, you know, the undocumented community is, is, is broad, it's wide, it's beautiful. We see a lot of examples of people supporting each other. We see spaces on Twitter. Um, we see spaces in um, immigrant rights organizations. So I think that if you're, if you're afraid or of sharing those things with someone at school or a counselor, for example, then I think that find your way over to these spaces that are created within your own community. You know, right now with all the students, all the kids are on TikTok, you know, go to TikTok, you know, like that's a space where they create, you know, community. And I think that, you know, start there. Right. Start there. Talk to folks who are in similar situations and then just take it step by step. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's some good you know, it, it sounds like a, a situation where you, you, you're damned if you do and damned if, if you don't. Hmm. And the situation gets worse and worse. And I'm thinking, you know, just in the back of my mind about the uh, undocumented parent who comes in to the uh, country and has uh, uh, children after they arrive right. and they bring in a child or some children uh, with them who are undocumented. Uh, what is the intra-family dynamics that occur, you know, at this uh, coming out point or the revelation point that uh, you are and you are not uh, able to, uh, to go forward? Yeah, um, and that's a really good, good um you know, observation because yeah, there are a lot of students are or folks who are in mixed status families, right? You are a US citizen, your parents are not. And so you don't have the luxury of just navigating this world as a person who has a US passport and US privileges, right? Because you have family members and parents who you have to think about constantly. And so it's hard, right? Um one of the one of the one of the students I've spoken to, she really highlighted that there's like a guiltiness that happens, right? Um, feeling guilty mm. um, that happens because um, 
you watching your parents go through these kinds of things, right? But then also like there's a sense of um, deep commitment to community and family because you recognize that your parents have sacrificed so much for you to be able to come here, to be able to be able to go to schools and provide for you on whatever they can, whatever they can do as folks who do not have like, you know, a working authorization card. And, and so wanting to give back, constantly wanting to make sure their parents are supported and come, you know, able to survive here in the US. So it's it's hard, right? Not US, US citizenship does not absolve you of the worry and the challenge of um, un- being undocumented because your family is, yeah, and it's hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. So we have a, a few minutes left. Um, you've done this really interesting, much needed research. Can you share what's next? Like, you know, so what's next on the horizon for you as far as your, your research work? Sure. So, um, you know, if I think about my work, I, I would categorize it in four um, distinct but related um, areas of interest. So I, I work with uh, Black, Black immigrant students broadly, um, Black undocumented students specifically, but also looking at anti-Blackness and how that shows up in higher education and the implications it has for these groups of students. But I'm also interested in understanding joy and what that looks like and taking a more humanizing approach to my work. Um, And so for me right now, one of the studies that I am currently underweighing looking at is how anti-Blackness shows up in the educational experiences of Black undocumented students, right? So I'm currently working on that right now. And so hit me up for results a little bit. Yeah, this is uh, amazing uh, information that uh, you are, are providing. And, uh, and it's something that I, I never really gave any serious thought to until uh, I read a synopsis of your, uh, of, uh, your, your paper that, uh, that you did and the uh, research that you uh, conducted. And then it just fell like a hammer on my head and said, oh, wow. Like it, uh, yeah. make, like it makes sense, right? Like, yeah, oh, yeah like this makes sense. I, yeah, I, I've seen this, you know, and didn't, uh, uh, didn't recognize it. And uh, so, uh, but, you know, in closing that, the anxiety that the student is facing, how do you address that in light of the reality that they are still looking over this show? Yeah, it's hard, right? And I think this goes back to my comment earlier about how can we foster joy? You know, how can we hold space for those kinds of conversations and feelings and experiences, right? Because, you know, in the midst of everything that's happening, there are also life-giving moments that are happening. And I think that, you know, we should be a part of trying to facilitate those things a lot more, right? So like one of my colleagues, there's a lot of work around Black joy, you know, Antar. Um, and so I think that having those kinds of conversations is good. I think making sure that you are abreast of immigration policies, they're, they're ever changing, um, and making sure that you are constantly communicating that also to students, right? Because they may be in the know, but sometimes, again, it's exhausting, you know? Um, so I think that's being in the know yourself as an educator so that you can then update them constantly on any change in policies and say, what does this mean, right? So for example, if the, if the real ID requires you to, everyone has to have this, what does it mean for you as a documented person? Like, can you still travel with your 
with, with, a, with an ID card or, you know, something else, for example. I think those are some of the kinds of things that we have to do to constantly support um, these students. And I can't stress enough about the joy piece. That's, that's just so important. Um, we just have to, yeah, that's the only way we can, and you can't really get rid of the anxiety, right? It's, it's, it's constant, mm -hmm. right? But how do we step away from it at times? I think that is perhaps the things that we have to think about. How can we help them step away from it, if even for small moments? I think that's important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting about this um, conversation that we're having here on the Legal Eagle Review is that Irv and I, of course, are both educators. And um, as he was just saying, you know, it's not something, I mean, we, of course, and we've had guests on the show who have talked about immigration, immigration policy, DACA, and we're, we're you know, familiar with it from that perspective. Um, so, but when we're thinking about the dynamics that those that are black and undocumented have to address and deal with, um, that hasn't been, you know, like on my radar in the same way. So, so as an educator, I really appreciate, especially you sharing, you doing the research and, and writing about it and uh, talking with us so I can kind of expand uh, what I know about this space and just be more supportive of students that I interact with who may be in this situation. Uh, thank you. I want to say one more thing. You know, um, for Black folks, as you know, like, you know, we're navigating an anti-Black world constantly. And then mm -hmm. having to deal with, um, you know, uh, immigration issues, it just further compounds it, right? And so, as you mentioned earlier, when you see a person that's Black, you don't see their immigration status, you see them Black, because that is how we're racialized first and always. We are forever Black. And it doesn't matter where we are, right? That is what we see first. And so not until you are arrested, not until you're racialized, then you reckon, you realize that it's, it's really serious because now I don't have um, you know, these documents that say that I can actually be here based on the US government. And so, yeah. All right. Um, let's see. So one final question for you, and you've you've mentioned this uh, before. You mentioned a couple of organizations, um, but can you just for those that are listening, can you remind them again of some organizations that they should seek out, um, look into if they have further questions or they need additional information? Yeah, you know, I think that the, the Dream USA is good. Um, the Black Alliance for Just Immigration, which is Baji, does an excellent job at really advocating for just immigration policies for Black individuals. Um, what I love about this organization is, is particular, in particular is that they constantly produce reports. They talk about the state of Black immigrants. Um, they talk about uh, immigrants at the border, right? So Haitian immigrants at the border, for example. Um, the African Alliance is another organization. So I think that there, there are several immigration rights group, immigrant rights groups that are really focusing on Black folks. And it's really good that we, we have them and we need to just kind of like lock in with them a little bit more. Well, excellent, excellent. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, but we would like to thank our guest, Dr. Kayon Hall. She is an assistant professor of higher education at Kent State University. 
And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. And we hope that you have learned something and that you will share this information with your family and friends. If you have any questions, please send us an email. You can reach us at legaleaglereview at nccu.edu. And if you miss this show on Sunday, you can find us on the Legal Eagle Review podcast. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.